0: Hello, this is Aaron Sutton, the Trauma Outreach Coordinator for Wesley. This is Travis Morn, EMS Coordinator, Wesley Medical Center. We're here with Frank Williams today, a Director of Butler County EMS. I'll let Frank uh, talk a little bit about his background and experience.
1: Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, Frank Williams grew up here in Butler County, Kansas, and uh, started out my career in EMS as an EMT. And uh, over the years, I've had some opportunity uh, to learn about airway management, by way of becoming a paramedic, um, being a nurse, a flight nurse, and brings me back to Butler County as the, the director. So,
0: awesome! Thank you, Frank. Glad to have you today.
1: Frank is the person who taught me how to
2: RSI, and we're here today to talk about the seven P's of medication induced innovation. The very first P is preparation. What do you guys comes to mind when you think preparation?
0: Well, this is something that uh, talked a little bit beforehand, uh, a little bit before the podcast. Frank and I both agree on and Aaron as well, that uh, preparation is the, the biggest of the seven P's, the biggest key there is. If, if you're not prepared to, to go down this route, you don't have everything in a line, uh, then you're set, definitely setting yourself up for failure. So the preparation is the, the key to the seven P's.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Travis. I think that this buys us time. This is um, best practice for the patients that we see, no matter what the situation, unless it's just a a can't ventilate, can't oxygenate situation, which would be an emergency. That may be an exception. But over my career, a majority of the patients have the most successful outcome uh, based on that first P.
0: Absolutely. So part of that first P is actually having all your equipment together. Uh, talk about having your patient on the SPO2. You want to have accurate blood pressure reading, uh, at least a four-lead EKG done. Uh, you want to have your functioning IV lines, preferably two. Uh, one of the questions that we have had is, is an IO okay for an RSI? And actually, I think it's absolutely fine. Um, a humoral head IO would be even better, uh, just being how the medication gets into the central circulation so quickly. So, But either way, an IO uh, of, any, of any type is, is fine as well for an RSI.
1: Absolutely. And I think entitled CO2 has been one of those tools that has really grown some traction over the years, and we've adapted the ability to do that, of course, by nasal cannula. Um, even if it's a, a readout in the very end uh, towards your preparation phase, um, that's something good to watch.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with the entitled CO2. It's something now um, that's such an easy procedure to do with the side stream capnography. Simply throw that on and Get that entitled CO2 reading. Kind of gives you a good idea of where your patient at is as far as pre and post innovation. So before we talk about um, the video laryngoscope and what laryngoscope
2: you're going to select, with preparation due to this uh, day and age, we got to consider uh, COVID. What extra precautions do you guys recommend that people going to innovate take due to COVID?
0: Obviously wearing some type of proper mask, you know, whether it's an N95 or whatever type of mask it is, uh, eye protection or a face shield, gloves, gown, etc., cetera, uh, making sure that you're taking all the necessary precautions for it.
1: Yeah, what a challenge. It, I never thought we would face such a focus on infection control in EMS. Um, of course, it's been there. We've trained on it. But the airway and being an aerosolized um, virus really brought a new perspective a lot of great ingenuity and i think we've seen that which is great in our world of both ems and the hospital but yeah the n95 mask um, pappers are another popular device to have on uh, during that time for us in the ems world um, the cross ventilation that we're able to do uh, mechanically in the back of an ambulance or having the doors open Uh, timing again the preparation of where you're going to do it who's around you when it happens, and being just more conscious, uh, kind of a visualization of, wow, um, things could be out in the air if I manipulate this airway, and what are we doing to protect ourselves as we stand
0: around here? So. And I think one of the great points you made is not only protecting yourself, but those that are around you for the innovation. So making sure that if you're in the back of that ambulance or if you're in the trauma bay When this innovation has happened, and and that you're in that area, that you're also protecting yourself and taking the same precautions that you would as if you were the person that was innovating. Yeah, Frank, you said your service has
2: changed out what you normally use on PVMs and modified your vents.
1: Yeah, so HEPA filtration um, and being able to put an adapter on the exhalation valve uh, for our ventilators, um, we have done the same thing just to get that extra barrier. Uh, available. Because at the very beginning in March and April, there was a lot unknown in the novel virus. So taking those steps, reevaluating, you know, how you do things and building, you know, a circuit to get to that airway may be very difficult uh, if your adapters aren't properly lined up or the right size. So I challenge everybody to take a look at your equipment and get to know it very,
0: very well. Yeah, that, that is a great point as well, being, being proficient in the equipment that you do have. Um, and all of it, you know, with your first line, your backup, uh, all of it as well, being proficient with all the equipment that you do have. Our patient is
2: monitored with SpO2, blood pressure, EKG, and title. We have IV lines. Um, now let's look at the equipment we're actually going to have to use to perform the procedure.
1: Frank, do you guys have video laryngoscopes at Butler County? Uh, yeah, we do. Those were introduced about four years ago now, as I understand it, um, and that's become the primary airway device for definitive placement of a tube. Um, of course, we still have direct laryngoscopy available as a backup, uh, but that's the device of choice for us. What's uh, Travis, what's your preferred
2: piece of equipment for innovation?
0: Uh, I prefer the video laryngoscope as well. I've had the opportunity to use several different models. Uh, I don't necessarily have a favorite as far as the type of video laryngoscope model. But And to be honest with you, I was a little bit resistant when it did first come out. I was forced to use that video laryngoscope like a lot of us old school medics. I was a little bit resistant to that. But once I got proficient with it, um, I found that it was a great tool to have for uh, verification. It also seemed to ease the the... Innovations, especially difficult innovations, a bit with that video laryngoscope. Awesome. Um,
2: So we've got our innovation equipment ready, our laryngoscopes. Um, Endotracheal tube. You know, the things that really help out when you're selecting that endotracheal tube is I love the Broslow tape. I love anything that takes the thought out of what I have to do. Um, The Broslow tape is fantastic. Um, What else do you guys use uh, for preparation?
0: Uh, Talking about with the and a tracheal tube i always have the appropriate size if depending on based on the height of the patient size of the patient's going to make my choice uh, i always go as far as usually to have half size below half size above and then of course my backup airway being a, whether it's a king or igel or whatever your service uses is having that backup as well ready to go
1: yeah i agree with Aaron and, and, and travis um <clears throat> you don't have to memorize a lot of these things like we used to old school so Please, please, please use your resources out there. Uh, other experienced people that may be around you in the room or in the ambulance, uh, don't hesitate to bounce things off of them, especially with those difficult things like a burnt airway, for instance, in a, uh, or some type of uh, epiglottitis or, you know, those really risky innovations that you're going to get yourself into.
0: One of the things I want to mention as far as well with, with the airways and the backup airway is that this that this is the point where you also have your equipment for a failed airway, whether it's going to be a, a crike kit um, or whatever you need to have out, but having going those so far as to have that out as well. And that's something, honestly, I didn't do early in my career. Um, but as I went through the difficult airway courses, uh, I've had some difficult innovations of uh, knock on wood, I've not had to crack somebody. I don't want to, but that is something that I'm prepared to do. And you have that crike kit readily available. So not only having those various sizes of tubes, your backup airways, but even your last-ditch resort, having that crike get available. Yes, always
2: be ready for that one crike. One of the things I'm really happy to see change, though, when I was
0: a paramedic starting out, was stylets were viewed negatively. One of the things I like now... Um, is that has all gone by the wayside you put your ego aside you use the tools that are available and give yourself the best chance for first pass success whatever that may be whether it's using a video laryngoscope using a stylet using the bougie set yourself up for success throw your ego aside sometimes that even means letting somebody else step up and take the innovation if you're in the back of the ambulance and you know it's going to be a tough innovation if you're not the most experienced provider uh, maybe step aside put your ego aside and let somebody else have a shot at that innovation as well
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with the lay your ego aside. I mean, think about the patient. I mean, the success and the outcome of the patient is our primary goal. So uh, if we've got the tools uh, available, why not use them?
2: Absolutely. And, Frank, you mentioned something in the pre-interview I really liked. It's okay to just know the tools you have. You don't need every single airway tool out there. Focus in on one video, and then your Mac, your Miller, your backup plan, or a couple other tools are great. But there's no sense in having a toolbox that's so heavy you can't carry it into your, your circumstances.
1: Absolutely. Master those tools that you have in front of you. And if you go to something new and more modern, then replace something. Don't just add it to your toolbox.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of that is Aaron spoke uh, in the pre-interview as well, as the physician uh, who's, who talked about attitude when you're given that new piece of equipment. And rather than grumbling and fighting and refusing to learn it and, and wishing you had the old way or whatever it is, embrace what's given to you uh, and master it and become a, become a master of that tool and use it as well. The second
2: P, pre Honestly, for me, that starts in, in preparation when I put that patient on a nasal cannula or the entitled CO2 nasal cannula. I've also included a published paper on our landing page attached to this podcast that discuss how the nasal cannula helps prevent desaturation during endotracheal innovation. Go ahead and have them pre-oxygenating in that sitting up or semi-reclined position at 30%. What this is going to do is help fill the lungs up like a reservoir bag, only internally.
0: Yeah, one of the things that we've actually done is gone so far as to close... Place both the nasal cannula and the non-rebreather on the patient. So we put the nasal cannula on, leave it at four to six liters. Go ahead and put the put the non-rebreather on. Obviously, you remove the non-rebreather to intubate, but leave the nasal cannula in place to provide some passive oxygenation.
1: Yeah, so, I think a lot of it depends on where the patient's at, and it's always important to get that initial baseline. Where am I at? How much how much oxygenation do I feel like this patient has? What's that oxygen uh, percentage or oxygen saturation? Uh, curve that's going on, along with VQ mismatch and the hemodynamic portion of that, I think that all leads to what am I going to do right now? If that means I need to 100% or 99% bag valve mask assist, um, that may be what we do to get the preparation and pre-oxygenation done. So we've done uh,
2: preparation, pre-oxygenation, and now we're on to pre-treatment. And we know we have lots of different patients that experience the need for innovation. What do you guys see with pre-treatment? What's the most you pre pretreated, or what considerations do you think of when you come to this third P?
0: Um, with my experience uh, and the services I work at, we still use lidocaine uh, for head-injured patients, and increased patients. We still use lidocaine, one to one-and-a-half milligrams per kilogram. Um, you know, from my understanding on the studies, there's, there's some say that it, that it does work, some say that it, that it doesn't necessarily do anything. What we do know is it really does no harm. So we go ahead and continue to do the, the lidocaine uh, pretreatment with any, any type of increase in the cranial pressure.
1: Yeah, I think load comes to mind, and that's something that I picked up several years ago, but lidocaine, an opioid atropine if, you're, if it's needed, and then some type of defasciculation, or be prepared for whatever um, para- paralytic that you're getting ready to use. Um, the other part of this, which Aaron mentioned uh, just briefly, but I think is important too, is positioning. And as you're starting to get ready to give these medications, is <clears throat> it comes natural to a lot of people to see the situation and say, well, that p- person would benefit from setting up. But don't forget about aligning the airway and getting the airway ready in whatever position you may need up and pulling the bed up, uh, make your environment as best as you can successful for visualization.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's one of the things that we get into to talk about positioning a little bit. And that's one of the things that probably needs to be done early it can help, actually help improve some of your pre-oxygenation as getting that patient in that proper position.
2: So we've talked about uh, one of the drugs you talked about, Frank, you mentioned, was atropine. Um, I know that's great to consider with pediatrics um, due to the uh, stimulus
0: of the vagus nerve. But, uh, you still see the use with pediatrics. Uh, you do see some variation on the age cutoff that, is being, that it's being used. But that's one of the things that's still recommended and we still use as well in the field is atropine. Um, I, I'd have to double-check my protocol, but I believe it's under the age of 8.
1: That's but, usually the cutoff the year.
0: Yeah, and that's usually where we, where we use it as um, well, like you mentioned, for the vagus stimulus. So. Um, so we've talked about our pretreatment.
2: Our next P is paralysis with induction. What's the first drug you normally start off with when you're doing an uh, innovation, Travis, with uh, your flight service?
0: We tend to use for uh, our sedation. Uh, we end up using ketamine quite often. Uh, so many of the patients that we run into, trauma patients, uh, medical patients, they are hemodynamically compromised, and so ketamine ends up being a great choice for that. We do have a little bit of sympathetic stimulation with it, so you may see some transient increase in the blood pressure, but most of those patients will tolerate that quite well. Uh, nice thing about ketamine, it has both the sedation and analgesia properties as well, so that kind of covers two, two birds with one stone there, so, but that's something that we tend to use quite often. Um, if that's not an option, for some reason, we end up looking at maybe uh, Versed. Uh, we've used Intomidate in the past, but with Versed, we end up typically getting so much of a, uh, of a uh, change in their hemodynamic status. Um, so we, that's usually stay away from it, but ketamine tends to be our first-line choice. Why
2: would we give uh,
0: ketamine? I like ketamine. Ketamine is going to be the sedation prior to... Ketamine is going to be our sedation prior to our paralysis, uh, which you always want to do first. Uh, Get that patient nice and comfortable. Get them sedated. Get them them there before you administer that paralytic. Like I said, the, the... the trend now is that you want to administer an analgesia with innovation. Okay, uh, as I mentioned, ketamine covers both bases for that—both sedation and analgesia for us.
2: Do you ever so. see anywhere still do maybe a little bit of Versed, fentanyl, and Atomidate, or is it pretty much ketamine's a good standard to go with?
0: It just depends on your patient's status and and where they're at, if ketamine is not a good choice for some reason, whether if they're a postcode or if there's some reason that you want to avoid that sympathetic stimulation, if you don't want to increase the workload on the heart, you stay away from ketamine in that instance, Uh, maybe looking at one of those other medications if their blood pressure will tolerate. So following sedation, once we get done with sedation, we'll start moving into the paralytics and there's a couple of choices for that, Uh, either looking at your succinylcholine or rocuronium, so... Um, do you have a preference, Frank, on, on medication-wise you know, as far as paralytics? You know, I grew
1: up where there was a transition from succinylcholine into rocuronium. And <clears throat> both, I think, are, are good drugs. Um, succinylcholine, of course, has some side effects that are more pronounced um, with that drive of hyperkalemia as a risk, um, pulling that into the vascular system, uh, which we don't want to do for the heart. Uh, to protect it. So certain circumstances with burns that are um, pretty acute, um, those people that um, are already in a hyperkalemic state of sepsis or, or something to that effect. So <clears throat> I really like rocuronium. Rocuronium seems to be um, easier um, to pull up, um, easier on the patient. Um, it's of course a non-depolarizing agent versus succinylcholine right. being a Polarizing agents, so the defasciculation and/or those cardiovascular effects you may see if you don't have good depolarization uh, of a medication prior to succinylcholine. Rocuronium's um, pretty beneficial.
0: Right, and I think probably the not only the difference between defasciculations and fasciculations, or as far as depolarizing, I should say, and polarizing, um, you're looking at some of the uh, half lives of the drug whereas obviously sucks is going to have a shorter half-life versus the rock um so i think that's where it made it a popular choice in the past and i think you know but i agree there's there's i know there's personally some physicians that don't care for sucks at all and would rather not have their patients receive sucks at all so rock uranium is a great choice then Uh, like i said it's an easier pretty easy dose remember as far as a milligram per kilogram makes the math a lot easier than one and a half milligrams per kilogram for the sucks dose um, so I agree, those are the two medications that I've had most experience with. We still see, tend to use SUX a lot in our emergency situations as far as uh, the medically-assisted innovations go or the RSI's go. We tend to use SUX a lot in the emergency world. Um, I think that's kind of, that trend is kind of fading away, and you're going to see more rocuronium use as we see some of the side effects and that we do know and have with uh, sucks.
1: And speaking of dosing, and just touch on that a minute, is um, <clears throat> not giving enough, I have seen and having complete paralyzation and relaxation, um, that's a barrier to the successful placement of the ET tube. So I think those observation periods that you have, and Aaron started to mention that about positioning, but you have this time period where you need to look, listen, and feel, and understand um, if the patient is truly um, having effects of the medication that you've given them in a positive
0: manner. Yeah, and that's that's a good point there. We're talking a little bit about dosing and possible underdosing with these patients. Um, with with RSI or medication-induced innovations, if you're gonna err on err obviously you don't hopefully there's medication error, there, but if you're gonna err err on the high side, you don't wanna underdose these patients. So make sure you're giving them the accurate dose that they need for it to to get the results that you want.
1: Yeah, their metabolism, it just means that there will be more, more free radical medication in their bloodstream, so it's just going
0: to last a little bit longer um, the more that you give. Absolutely, and that's a that's good point there with metabolism. Talk about metabolizing some of those medications when you get into kiddos or uh, patients who have maybe been in some, some recreational drugs, some amphetamines or things of that nature, they're going to burn through it pretty quickly, so they may need some additional medication.
1: Yeah.
2: All right. So the next P is positioning. We have, we, our patient's being monitored. We have our tools selected and ready to go. We've pre-treated and we've induced paralysis. So the next thing we want to do is
0: what? So basically at this point, we're going to check the patient to make sure that they're in a, in a paralyzed state, to make sure they're properly sedated, properly paralyzed. We've got them in the position that we feel is going to best uh, facilitate uh, first pass success with our innovation. So, whatever that may be, Put them in the back of your truck, um, you have them on the cot, I obviously, have them in a trauma bay, in a hospital bed, ER bed. You know, that's the opportunity where you can raise or lower the bed, you can elevate their head, you can put yourself in a position to best facilitate that first pass success. And so, that's something to take advantage of. That means when they do go down in the bathroom, if you're out mm-hmm. in the field, maybe take that extra two minutes, move them to the cot rather than trying to innovate them right there in the bathroom, you know. Um, once again, kind of putting that ego aside and take a few minutes, uh, get them somewhere where that's going to help you with a better chance of success.
1: Yeah, I think this is where the BLS skills and techniques really shine. Because at this point, we have taken away the ability for the patient to breathe, and their life is in our hands. And so I think your skills for back valve mask, positioning, Uh, as Travis has mentioned, using adjunct um, airways in the interim until you're uh, ready for that time zero is crucial right here. So don't forget those BLS skills. Go back, do your reassessment just like we're always taught during this process. Something changes, react to that change.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up the BLS skills. That's a little bit of a a soapbox for me. Something I can't utilize, you can't utilize enough. Once again, early in my career, once we learn how to innovate, you're so excited to be able to innovate everybody, and you forget about how uh, effectively using those BLS skills, bag, valve, masking somebody, and that is a huge part of that. That can buy you the time that you need to get them in a proper position or get them where you need to be. And do not be
2: afraid to put that patient in a reclined position for innovation, where you get the best line of sight. Uh, For those cords Um, I know with obese patients Having that that Building up a ramp of blankets if needed Because that has got to be one of the toughest Innovations I've seen Find that right position to put the patient in And you don't really even have to move to see the cords Is the best feeling in the world
1: (laughs) Yeah, if we can still oxygenate and ventilate Along with the back valve mask The BLS skills is um, We're managing an airway It's not all about that passing the tube At some point Um, you could fail, and you should be prepared for that. So your BLS skills are going to save you every time. Absolutely. The next P,
2: which is really advanced since I started as a paramedic, placement with proof. So I know we all know the very first thing you want to do is visualize those cords. Frank, I was really impressed that Butler County actually has video laryngoscopes that take that picture as they're they're doing the innovation, and then they you add that to your uh, your patient report, correct?
1: Yeah, it gives us a verification. Obviously, um, instead of having to have a second person, which is also you know a validating portion of that, and then archiving that for look back on training, quality assurance. Um, so it's very helpful. Used as a positive feedback, um, a constructive way to train and and get some more information out there.
2: So. Uh, I love being
1: able to uh, track
2: with video. And then the other thing that's progressed in my career, in title CO2 catenography, having that catenography on and just definitive placement is, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the, uh, the bulbs. There's nothing wrong with the color change metrics. They do a great job. But that in title CO2 is instantaneous, real-time, where your SpO2 does have that delay.
0: On a quick side note, with that entitled capnography and that using that for verification, one of the things I would recommend is get a printout of that uh, that you have for your documentation as well. We've had a had an instance where we had a patient who was successfully intubated, but with our transition to from the helicopter to the trauma bay, the, bay, the tube became dislodged. But I did not take the time to ma- have a print off uh, to verify my tube placement. So they basically coined it as a or, Labeled it as an esophageal intubation and although we knew it was a successful innovation at one point. It just became dislodged, but so uh, Obviously having that print off of that entitled capnography would be a great backup and something to include in your documentation
1: Yeah, I would include you know just the time that you have if you've properly prepared and positioned and pre-oxygenated and buys you that time to take a good look? <clears throat> if you're using a stylet like or a bougie um, which I totally support, um, you should watch and see that be removed before, that you, before you confirm that the tube is actually in place. I have uh, had instances where it appears maybe the stylet pulled and cur- curled the tube out of the tracheal opening, the, the glottic opening, so um, just be cautious about that get a good visualization before you say we're in
0: right absolutely one of the things that i tend to do with ours our video learning the scope that we have we're not we don't have the ability yet to take a picture and so i typically will have my partner if they're available and near me i'll have them watch or verify it as well with me so i have a second set of eyes verifying that innovation This is a big one post innovation
2: management if you're in the er that x-ray is is worth the time but the real real point i want to hit on post innovation management is continuing using the uh, sedatives and the necessary paralytics. I'll be honest, one of the things that always sat in my gut was when someone would, would start moving around being innovated and the need to, to make sure they were comfortable and that their comfort, their life, was now my responsibility until I handed that patient off. I can't tell you how many times that sat with me, um, making sure I had the right medications to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, providing continuing sedation and analgesia. For that patient, keeping them comfortable, keeping them pain free as well. Uh, paralytics as needed, which realizing I think that not every patient we paralyze uh, needs continuing paralyzation after the innovation. Some of them need to uh, just need that sedation and analgesia, and the others, then there's of course those that we may need to paralyze as well. So,
1: Yeah, a couple of points about that I would bring up is one, the paralytics that Travis mentioned is it's not going to be the same paralytics you used for the uh, medication-assisted intubation, or RSI. Um, those are short-acting. Those are intended to, to have time zero for placement of the tube, and then there are much better paralytics and ongoing sedation that can, that can occur after. Um, the other thing about the placement that I would say is that watching from the second that you uh, pass the tube to make sure that you're owning that, or somebody is, an airway master of sorts, who is responsible for that uh, from here on out. And if changed over using career resource management to verbalize that, to make sure, I mean, you've worked really hard to get to this point, um, make sure that you maintain that. Um, And as far as medications, you know, I was always of the habit um, to draw up those medications that I would need um, prior to paralyzing the patient, the ongoing sedation, uh, the ongoing analgesia, and the ongoing uh, non-depolarizing paralytic. Because, like Travis mentioned, we're not sure if recreational drugs were a part of this patient's history necessarily. Uh, They may metabolize very quickly, and as Aaron pointed out, we do not want them to be able to feel or remember um, this event. And I also
2: remember you teaching me, uh, you're the reason I carried a permanent marker in my uh, uniform, was to label those syringes because uh, they all look alike
1: <laughs> when you draw them up. Yeah, in the heat of the moment, make sure yeah. that you know what's in each one of those. Yeah. And the MAC check helps. But oh, my gosh. Verify, verify once you've uh, done that cross-check of uh, right dose, right patient, right time. Yeah. Um, and you talk about
2: you don't know what the patient might have in their system, uh, but there's also environmental things that could stop you from getting to that uh, definitive uh, ER bit. An elevator slowing down, um, an ambulance uh, having a flat tire on the way there. Like, don't just think about the meds you need for the next 45 minutes. Think about the meds you need for the next three hours, even though you're hoping this will be 45 minutes. Um, I think we've all encountered that before. Uh, what kind of signs do you guys see with patient discomfort that, that tell you it's time to readminister?
0: Looking for anything, of course, of any type of movement. Uh, you may have some tearing of the eyes. May have some increased vital signs, uh, increased blood pressure, increased heart rate, things of that nature. Looking for any signs of subtle, subtle signs of discomfort that it's time to resedate uh, and do some more analgesia for your patient.
1: Yeah, I think the only other thing um, that I've seen is a train of four and or a nerve stimulator, um, mostly in the OR. But I know that there are some EMS services, and there are some uh, ERs that are adapting. The same things an anesthesiologist or a methodist would use to just do a twitch to see how deep a sedation and or paralyzation they have.
2: Well, you guys can find this list of our seven Ps on our landing page. Feel free to use it. We highly recommend you print it out and follow along. Uh, If you listen to this podcast, don't be afraid to do this with the team that you're going to innovate with. Um, I highly recommend if you get a new partner or you get new staff in your ER and you're one of those small ERs with um, people wearing multiple hats, this is a great way to go over a tough subject that requires a large amount of teamwork and dedication towards the patient's well outcome. Frank, thank you so much. Uh,
0: Frank, thanks, man. I do truly appreciate your time and the information that you've given us today. If you guys have any questions about anything in the podcast today, we can be reached at travis.morn at wesleymc.com or at aaron.sutton at wesleymc.com. And by the way, we are available to come out and teach airway classes to your facility, agency, or service at any time. Just reach us at the email addresses I've given you, and we'd be happy to come do it.